Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. America is in the midst of an extraordinary surge of COVID-19. At the start of June, the US appeared to have managed its epidemic as well as Europe. Both began reopening at roughly the same time. But six weeks on, the country is facing more outbreaks, quite unlike any other developed country. Last week, new infections rose by at least 10% in 37 states. Six states, as well as Washington, D.C., experienced a spike greater than 50% in case numbers. What has gone so wrong? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how can America regain control of the coronavirus? My guest is Dr. Robert Redfield, Director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and a key advisor to President Donald Trump. He was appointed a founding member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force back in January. With over 20 years in the U.S. Army Medical Corps behind him, he's a leading researcher in the field of HIV-AIDS, contributing to scientific understanding of the disease and its treatment. Before joining the CDC, he was Chief of Infectious Diseases at the University of Maryland, where he also co-founded the Institute of Human Virology. Dr. Robert Redfield, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. And also with me is The Economist's US editor, John Prideau. Thanks for being with us, John. Dr. Redfield, could you start by telling us, for those listening overseas, or perhaps for American listeners who aren't quite sure, in a nutshell, what does the CDC do? Well, you know, the CDC really is the premier public health institution, I think, in the world. Our job is largely to help use data and science to improve the human condition, focusing on really the whole spectrum of illness, whether it's infectious diseases in response to detection, prevention, and control, such as we're in the midst of now with coronavirus, but also in dealing with a number of chronic diseases, where it's drug use disorder, whether it's diabetes. It really has the task to work, to use data driven by science to then convert that into public health policies that improve human health uh, and the human condition. It's obviously a very wide range that you cover, but you and the CDC have been imagining something like this pandemic for years and uh, figuring out what you might do about it. But how much have the past months differed from what you had expected or indeed planned for? This is the most serious public health crisis that we've collectively faced in the, uh, in the world in, in more than a century. Despite how prepared I think people may have thought we were, I think it is important to be uh, honest that, at least in my country, really for decades, we've underinvested in public health. And as a result, the core capabilities of public health, of data, data analysis, data modernization, the ability to do predictive data, data analysis, 
laboratory resilience in public health to be able to surge to new challenges, public health workforce that is really equipped to operationalize early diagnosis, contact tracing, isolation, really was underinvested in. And I think uh, I've tried to make the point since I became director in, in 2018 uh, that one thing that we as a nation, uh, and I would argue as a world, should always look to over-prepare as opposed to under-prepare is obviously our public health response capability. Dr. Redfield, at the start of June, cases in America looked to be declining after reaching that terrible milestone of 100,000 dead in America. And at the time, The Economist wrote that America's epidemic was roughly on the same trajectory as Europe's was. That's no longer the case. We've seen a very fast upswing in cases in America, whilst the numbers in Europe have stayed relatively flat. What's changed there? You know, John, that's a really important question. And I, you know, I really wish I knew the answer. I mean, I think there are some things that we can say. Clearly, this outbreak in uh, the United States has really come under really relatively good control in the Northeast after having, you know, a very significant impact there, whether it's Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, New Jersey, New York. But in the middle of June, all of a sudden, we saw a marked increase in cases in the Southeast and Southwest in particular. With this new surge, it really shifted in that it's about a decade and a half younger. It's younger individuals. Obviously, its impact in terms of mortality has changed substantially. In March, we actually had, sadly, death tolls on a daily basis that were over 2,500 people. And that's with maybe 15 to 20,000 cases being reported in a day. Now we're having over 60,000 cases reported in a day and somewhere between 250 and at most the high 900 deaths. Uh, So it's a different situation. Not exactly sure why. I do think there's one important thing, though, to highlight, and I I say this carefully so it's not misinterpreted. We're pretty confident in the United States that we had very limited virus in January and February, and we've investigated it in depth by a variety of different lines of scientific evidence and shown that there was very limited uh, introduction in January and February. But obviously in March, we began to see significant introduction in the U.S., largely driven from the interrelationship of our travel relationships with Europe. And between March, April, and May, we ended up having about 2 million cases diagnosed in the United States. But if you look behind that, the reality is we actually had almost 20 million infections. So if we had 20 million infections over those 90 days, you can see that that means we were having over 200,000 infections a day, but we just didn't diagnose it. So I'm not as clear as the overall burden of new infections in the United States is that dramatically different. I am very clear that our recognition of them is far greater. And I am clear that in certain states like Florida, Texas, and California, and Arizona, now South Carolina, the amount of infections are clearly much higher than they were in the spring. So I'm not to try to minimize the real serious challenge we have right now, but I do think it's important to recognize that in reality, the U.S. was having quite a number of infections in April and May per day. We weren't really diagnosing asymptomatics. We weren't diagnosing the young. 
from my perspective, it looks like some of the states Dr. Redfield mentioned, Florida, Texas, Arizona, a few others in the Sun Belt, got impatient with the lockdowns, locked down at a time when they didn't have all that many cases, started to let people go to bars and go to restaurants and gather together. And then we're really opening up as cases were taking off against the advice of all public health officials. Is that the case, Dr. Redfield? You know, John, I, I don't think so. I mean, and, and this is why. First, you know, we did put out very specific guidance how to reopen. As you know, very few of any states actually follow that guidance. And so there is a tendency to say maybe the reason could be sort of some of the reopening too early or not consistent with the guidance. When the outbreak started in the United States in the Northeast, particularly New York and then northern New Jersey, then Connecticut and Boston, Massachusetts, it was sequential. So you had all of a sudden, you had a problem in New York and started to grow, and then you saw you know, New Jersey, and then you saw Connecticut, and then you saw Boston. When we look back at what happened in the South right now, something happened between June 12th and June 16th. All of these now hotspots all became activated all started to increase and then move into exponential growth. It wasn't sequential, and we can't relate it to those jurisdictions that were closed or open. A number of them had been reopened for five, six weeks before this happened. So I don't think that's the explanation for why we have such widespread accelerated cases in the South. Dr. Redfield, you must have a hunch. What do you think happened? That's very specific. My hunch, my hunch, and, you know, and it's, you know, again, CDC is science-based data-driven. We're not really an opinion organization. We don't really, as an agency, get into the hunches. But I do think the hypothesis that I would have right now is that it wasn't really Memorial Day weekend, but it was the Memorial Day week or so, where a number of individuals, particularly from some of the previous northern, uh, northeastern groups, decided to go on their Memorial Day vacation. And if you look at where a lot of these hotspots started, whether it's Charleston or Florida or Galveston, the, the southern individuals who had been spared from this outbreak really weren't embracing the social distancing strategies that we had recommended because they really hadn't had an outbreak. So I think it's more likely related to migration of people from areas of what were now declining transmission that went on vacation for, say, May 26th through the beginning of June. And then before we know it, we had seeded many parts of the South. How many cases, or indeed deaths, would you project to be within the likely ballpark by the end of this year? But I do think that the virus right now is definitely causing much less mortality in those that are infected because they're younger and they're healthier when they get infected. And so I, do, I don't think yeah. we're going to see a huge rise in mortality. As I've watched over the last uh, two weeks, it's ranged between, say, 250 deaths up to almost 900 and something deaths in a day. As I say, our job is not to be predictive. We have to look at the data as it comes in. Dr. Redfield, as you say, age is a really important predictor of mortality when it comes to COVID. But there have been a lot of studies showing that black and Hispanic Americans have much higher mortality rates, even as high as 
10 times higher than white Americans, even when age is taken into account. What's going on there? It just highlights the reality of the health disparities that are present in the United States that can be unfortunately depicted either by race or ethnicity. The driver behind that is not the ethnicity itself or the race itself, it's the comorbidities, diabetes or heart disease or kidney disease or reactive airway disease, or most importantly in our nation, is obesity. It just underscores why it's so important to have meaningful, purposeful programs that can address these health inequities of these chronic diseases. Really the worst in our nation are our nation's original inhabitants. The uh, Native American Indian population is the group that has the highest mortality. But when we look inside it, it also has the highest rates of diabetes, the highest rates of obesity, the highest rates of a number of, unfortunately, these chronic diseases that clearly are associated with enhanced mortality associated with COVID-19. I'm just thinking back to when we first started to cover this and the policy choices that, that lay ahead in America and elsewhere. And I'm wondering if you could go back to the start of this year. Is there anything that you would do differently or prioritise in a different way. I think it took a while for us to understand the whole nature of this virus causing asymptomatic infection. I mean, if, if I think if we'd had a better handle on that in January, um, that would have had enormous public health implications. It took us time to learn that. That had policy implications. Once we knew there was asymptomatic transmission is when we realized that the powerful weapon of wearing a face mask was an important defense. It wasn't just trying to target symptomatic people because it turns out that probably, particularly among young people, more than half the people with this virus don't have any symptoms. You know, obviously I think consistency of messaging is obviously very important. Do you believe that there's consistency of messaging now? And I, I, I mean, it, it's the federal level as well as the state level. I mean, could, could you talk about consistency given the very mixed picture that we seem to be seeing? Well, I think we're getting there. It's obviously taking longer, uh, you know, to have the consistency with the American public, where I think the American public is getting a cleaner understanding that what I said before, that the powerful tools that we have are wearing a face covering, hygiene, really considering uh, significant gatherings so you can maintain uh, some social distancing, not having businesses open that um, really promote irresponsible behavior like bars. And I think there's more consistency now, say, than there was two months ago. I've always given the analogy about Aristotle. He used to sort of teach that when you have a blank slate, you can put anything on it and everybody believes it. But if you have a slate with something on it and you have to erase it, and in his day, you had to really sand it down, the tablet, and then you put something else on it, it's very hard to get people to believe it with the same fervor. The best shot you have at messaging is your first shot. And I do think, as I said, because of some of the lack of knowledge of this virus back in February and early March about asymptomatic transmission, pre-symptomatic transmission, that there was obviously mixed messaging about whether face coverings for the general public were of value or not. And, you know, once we understood asymptomatic transmission was real, we were pretty aggressive 
in promoting face coverings for the American public to basically be a major mechanism of source control. And the other thing I would say, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, I wish that we had an over-invested, over-prepared public health system in this country that had the full core capabilities of data-data analytics, multiple laboratory resilience, a huge public health workforce, so that when this came, it actually came into a, an underinvested data system, an underinvested public health laboratory uh, system, and an underinvested public health uh, workforce in our nation. And I think we paid a price because of it. Dr. Redfield, I think when people like us criticize inconsistency of messaging from the federal government, it's not really the CDC that we're criticizing. I mean, as far as I can see, America's the only country in the West where mask wearing has become a politicized issue. And I think you know, that's because of messaging from the White House. Vice President Pence said in a briefing on reopening schools yesterday that, to be very clear, this is a quote, we don't want CDC guidance to be a reason why people don't reopen their schools. We're going to respect whatever decisions are made on campuses. So you've got you know, the vice president instructing schools not to listen too much to what the CDC says. You know, you've got the White House putting out talking points, trying to undermine Dr. Fauci, which I'm imagine must have some impact on the way that public health officials in America are prepared to to talk. I mean that that's the stuff that people look at and, and worry about. Not not so much that the you know CDC maybe didn't emphasize the importance of face coverings early enough. I think we continue to move forward. There's uh, you know I'm I'm glad to see Obviously, the vice president, the president, you know, now wearing face coverings. I do think that the way the response in the United States has gone is that, you know, while the federal government has assisted, it's really state led and each of the 50 governors and the territorial leaders are really and their public health systems are driving their response where they're assisting them. But I do think it's important. I, your point well taken. Uh, we don't need to be politicizing these public health interventions. You know, face coverings should and isn't a political issue. It's a public health issue. And really, there's not value to have these interventions then get politicized. Is that a, a battle that you think you can win? Because the signs are, if anything, as we're also in an election year, that this is politicised. It is part of a culture war. You, you talked earlier about messaging and clean slates. I mean, are you hopeful that you can make that kind of shift when the messaging from, from the White House is, uh, you know, speaking here as someone who's watching it from a distance, it appears at best random. I do think that it's important, not just for those of us in my country, but those of us around the world, to really understand that we're kind of all in this together. This is a very serious public health threat. We're only going to be as successful, I think, as we can if we're in it together. I'm going to keep pushing that. I will say that I'm somebody that's on the White House Coronavirus Task Force, and I'm at the table every day. I get to give my best public health recommendations to my colleagues, along with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks and Dr. Hahn. And our public health opinion is uh, listened to and respected by our non-public health colleagues, uh, the cabinet members, the vice president, the president. Can that be really the case, though, given the slow response? I'm just picking up on one aspect, which would be the wearing of masks and the messaging 
about how useful, indeed essential that was, I think, in your view. And you reiterated it, but that isn't what we heard, really. It wasn't what we heard from the president. I'll push back a little on this one, because the truth is the president and vice president, our recommendations for case coverings, as you know, were for source control. I wear my mask to protect you. You wear your mask to protect me. And that really was where we had the science data to support face coverings. And the reality is the president and the vice president, you know, are tested every day and everybody around them are tested. So from a public health point of view, there was science-based data that they wouldn't necessarily benefit from wearing a mask or people around them. That said, I think they became aware more and more how important their example was of wearing a face covering because while they may not need to wear one from public health, they help us get that consistency of messaging out that this is something we want the American public to do. And if everybody in my nation would just put on a face covering, right, whenever they're in public or around other individuals where they can't maintain social distancing, and we did that for four, six, eight, 10, 12 weeks, the outbreak in America would be over. We'd get it under control. We'd bring it to its knees. But it does take that degree of commitment of each individual to do their part, uh, part of this social responsibility. Uh, If we want to continue to be divisive about this, whether it's political or whatever, I think it compromises our ability to successfully respond. If we decide now we have a common enemy, uh, the coronavirus, and at least we can agree to disagree on many other things. But when it comes to coronavirus, uh, we're going to get in this together to try to defeat it. I'm still going to be an optimist that we're going to get there. I think there's a real possibility that we'll have a a safe and efficacious coronavirus vaccine uh, before the end of the year. When the vaccine is ready to go into phase three trials, the efficacy studies, which are starting as we speak, at that moment in time, the United States is buying 100 million doses of that vaccine to be produced now so that in the event that in October or November that our FDA concludes that the vaccine is safe and it works, we don't have to go wait for the company now to set up manufacturing. We'll have 100 million doses. I'm sure there'll be at least five and maybe seven vaccines where we've decided to basically buy them whether they work or not, to make sure there's no delay in being able to provide them. I've never seen vaccine development move quicker. There's a highly effective partnership between the private sector and government to make this happen. And I would assume that we're going to have somewhere, hopefully between one and three vaccines approved for human use prior to uh, the end of the, prior to January. That said, we can never, you know, science has its own timeline, we can't predict, but I'm much more optimistic than I was 12 weeks ago. And how worried are you about the impact of the anti-vax movement in America on that rollout? There was a a poll, I think, from the AP and University of Chicago in May, saying one in five Americans said they would refuse to get vaccinated. Nearly a third said they weren't sure. So if that proportion holds, and it might have come down a bit as people have got more scared of coronavirus, but nonetheless, it's a sizable number of people who sound like they wouldn't welcome the vaccine and therefore you wouldn't get the herd immunity that you were hoping for. 
turning our public from vaccine hesitancy to what I've been trying to do for the last three years is building a culture of vaccination with confidence, I think is really important. As you know, less than 50% of the American public take advantage of the flu vaccine. Flu is not just some minor thing. It killed 360,000 people in the last 10 years in this country died of flu. So flu is a, not such of a, just a benign little flu thing. It's, it's a major cause of death in this country. And we have a vaccine that can modulate death, even if you get infected, it can, and yet we find half of the American public don't take advantage of it. So we're working hard. Most people that are vaccine hesitant are just worried about making a mistake for not themselves so much, but for their family members. Much fewer are actually misinformed. And then there's much, much fewer actually rock solid anti-vax individuals. But I do think it's really important. And I will tell you, we're, we're working on that as we speak at CDC. I think we can't underestimate the threat of individuals that are being dissuaded to embrace what I have said is really the most important advancement in modern medicine that science has given medicine, and that's vaccination. As a physician scientist who spent most of his life trying to see science come up with solutions to improve the human condition, nothing's more saddening to me for people to make the decision to leave science on the shelf for themselves, their family, their community. And I'm gonna do everything I can to try to get people to embrace vaccination for what it is. Part of me thinks that this COVID is so serious that some people will finally say, wait a minute, I wanna get vaccinated. But the truth is, I don't know the answer. Dr. Redford, what do you think does need to be done to to make it safe for schools to uh, reopen? And, And how important do you think that is to, to public health, as it does now seem to be turning into another uh, bit of a dividing line with those comments from Vice President Pence uh, saying CDC guidance shouldn't be the reason why people don't reopen their schools. I think it is really important to get these schools reopened, not as a father and a grandfather of 11, but I think the public health of K through 12s is not served by having schools closed. You know, in our country, I don't know yours, but 7.1 million students in K through 12 get their mental health services in school. Many people get their breakfast and lunch through schools. All of our schools are the key to identifying sexual abuse and, and child abuse that are mandatorily reported. Obviously the socialization that's important in school and allowing people to have that face-to-face learning. So to me, that's where we need to get. Now, the question is, how do you get there safely? Now, from the point of view of the students, I think I can argue that COVID is not a major consideration. The risk for students developing a significant infection associated, for example, with death is one in a million. So I don't think we should be taking away school because of that risk. These kids are much more at risk. We're seeing in the high school kids increased suicide, increased drug abuse, obviously increased uh, symptoms with individuals with mental health issues. I think we've got to get these schools functioning. That said, we have to do it in a way that protects the vulnerable and the vulnerable frequently are the teachers. So there are teachers and there's some estimates that as many as 30% of the teachers in the United States have one or more medical conditions that may put them at risk for coronavirus. So figuring out how to protect the vulnerable teachers 
and those few vulnerable students while bringing kids back to school. It's not opening schools versus public health. It's public health versus public health. And the way I weigh the scales is that the public health of the K through 12s are much better served by figuring out how to get these schools reopened for face-to-face learning again, and working hard to, in the process, to do it in a way that protects the safety of the vulnerable teachers and the vulnerable students. You have, I read, a a large family yourself. You have six children. Have you been able to see them during the the last few months? And how's your own life and your own patterns of behaviour been affected? I do have six children. My oldest boy, unfortunately, died. I have 11 grandchildren now. I have nine of them that are actually in school. And one of them, which has cystic fibrosis, and it has affected it. You know, uh, my daughter uh, works in a hospital that uh, has risk with COVID patients. So when they come over to see us, they stay about 20 feet away in the backyard and I see my grandson play. We haven't had family gatherings for my birthday or for the 4th of July. We've done a lot of video. I had a, I had a, I had one of those like Zoom video birthdays. Do you yourself go to restaurants? Did you last go to a cafe, restaurant? I have one restaurant that I go to that I have a table that's basically six to 10 feet away from other tables. It's outside. But outside of that, I've enjoyed rediscovering my wife's cooking. Dr. Robert Redfield, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you all. Great. Thanks. God bless both of you. And thanks too to my colleague, John Prideau, our US editor. Thanks, John. Thanks, Anne. That was really interesting. Lots of you to feedback there on your thoughts to John and me and our team on what you've heard. Would you reopen schools faster? And what's the best way to deal with viral anti-vax campaigns competing for attention with public health recommendations? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. For more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for the best offer wherever you are. And you'll find the link in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London... This is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.